Thanks for listening to the Granary Church Podcast. For more information, head to granary.org.au or follow us on social media at The Granary Church. If you've been here the last few weeks, um, you'll know we've been doing a a mini challenge, so to speak, to start the year uh, called Thriving Within. And we've been looking at practices that revive our souls. And we've talked about things like prayer, like reading the Bible. And today I want to talk about uh, nature and how nature helps us uh, connect with God. And I'm not, I just want to say I'm not turning into a pantheist. We're not saying that pantheism says that nature is God. But what I want to look at is the idea that nature speaks to us about God in the same way that we can look at a canvas or a a sculpture and say something about the artist that did it. We can look at our world and say something about the God that created it and about his character uh, and his nature. And uh, that idea is probably expressed uh, most clearly in uh, Romans uh, 1.20, which is the passage that Sue started us off with in the very first message in this series. It reads this way. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. The idea that all of creation speaks uh, of God, and I particularly like the way the Passion translates this verse. He says, for seeing seeing the visible makes us understand the invisible. So that's the idea that I want uh, to pursue. It's not a new idea. The medieval theologians uh, spoke about uh, nature being the first book of God and the Bible being the second book of God. So if we were to open the book of nature, what would it say to us? Uh, And I just want to pick out a few things. Now, I'm not going to be exhaustive. We can't cover. uh, We could experience nature for multiple lifetimes and still come away with a sense of wonder and new things to learn. But I just want to pick out five things uh, to get us started. We could read the Bible our entire lives and still find new things, and I hope you'll see um, we can experience nature all our lives and find new things. But we'll just pick a few lessons. So let's start with the first one. I think nature speaks to us about a place of silence to hear God better. So um, we often see in the Gospels Jesus going away to a, a, a natural place, quiet before major decisions uh, in his life. So before he started his ministry, for example, we see him going out to the desert for 40 days and 40 nights. Before he picked his 12 disciples, he spends the night in prayer out on the mountainside. We read throughout the, the Gospels that Jesus keeps sneaking away from the disciples to go out to the countryside to pray early in the morning, late at night. And we have to remember Jesus was living at a time when there were no phones, no televisions, no computers, no social media. And even if he even needed to go away to a quiet place, how much more do we need that in our noisy uh, and distracting uh, world? We read in uh, Psalm 19, uh, this is the the one that starts, the heavens declare the glory of God. But I want to look at it in the message version because I really like the way it translates this verse. It says, God's glory is on tour in the skies, God craft on exhibit across the horizon. Madam Day holds classes every morning, Professor Knight lectures each evening. Their words aren't heard, their voices aren't recorded, but their silence fills the earth. Unspoken truth is spoken everywhere. The idea of nature as a place where silence speaks louder than words, I think is a really important one 
in terms of um, reviving uh, our souls. I think it's also not an accident that Jesus picks um, nature to do most of his teaching. Um, so if you remember when he first starts his ministry, he's in the synagogue, he picks up the scroll with Isaiah and, and reads that. But then after that, almost his entire teaching and preaching is out in the countryside. Just the, that picture there is the Mount of Beatitudes where Jesus does the Sermon on the Mount. And I think it, it's not an accident that Jesus speaks about his Father in a setting that also speaks about his Father. Uh, and so that idea of nature as a place of silence that speaks about God and helps us to focus on God is one that comes through uh, in Scripture quite strongly. If we go to the second lesson, I think nature is also a reminder of God's love and care. We read in, in Luke 12, Jesus says, Life is more than food and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Consider how the lilies grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. It's interesting that Jesus takes these two images side by side, ravens and lilies. The ravens, he talks about food, and, and that is a necessity, that is a, a, a useful thing to have. <laughs> food is a useful thing. But then the lilies, he talks about dress and about beauty. And so that juxtaposition of utility and beauty, I think, is a real hallmark of God's presence. And, and that's not an accident because we see that echo all through the Old Testament, way back even in Genesis 2. If we look at that uh, verse 9 in chapter 2, the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye, beauty, and good for food, utility. Utility and beauty is the hallmark of God, and it's a reminder of his love and care. The photo that you see up there is an Australian native called the fringed lily. And uh, I think it's a perfect example of beauty and utility. Uh, utility in the sense that the Aboriginal people use the uh, roots as uh, edible tubers, uh, so you can eat them. But it's also this incredibly iridescent purple. It's got this beautiful symmetry about it, the fringed petals. It is a beautiful thing. That beauty is costly. So the genetic blueprint to make a flower like this is incredibly complex and more complex than, than what it takes to build us humans. It turns out that many flowers have more genes than humans do. So all humans have 23,000 genes, flowers have up to 40,000 genes. So the complexity that goes into building something like this is incredible. And I think that speaks to us about God's love and care for even the smallest uh, things in this world. And just as a, to, to make it even more extravagant, God's energy and love and care, is that these flowers bloom for only one day. They're only 20 centimeters tall, they bloom for one day, and yet God puts so much care and complexity into building them. And I guess to me as a scientist, I find that that is probably the most convincing argument for God's, not only God's existence, but God's care uh, and his love. So, you could imagine, being a scientist, I work a lot around a lot of people who believe that everything that we see around us has been um, created by the collision of random atoms and by random mutations that happen in our DNA. And you could imagine, well, maybe when things smash together, you could get something that works, something that has utility. 
But the more complexity you see in, in that, the less uh, it, it is easy to believe that that's just chance. And then when you add beauty on top of it, as that's the icing on the cake, to, to think that something can come together by chance and create not only utility, not only utility, but complexity, not only complexity, but beauty, it takes more faith to believe that that's chance than that there is a, a loving and caring God uh, behind it. The, the other thing that, I come, that comes through in that is God's attention to detail and his love of small things. So I said these flowers are only 20 centimeters uh, tall. They're tiny. But it seems that that's God's modus operandi. He loves to take small things and care for them and grow them into bigger things. If we look at the examples that Jesus uses to describe the kingdom of God, we see that focus. Jesus says in Luke 13, what is the kingdom of God like? It's like a mustard seed. So the mustard seed was the smallest seed generally known in the Middle East at that time, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air perched in its branches. It's like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. So when Jesus is trying to communicate the kingdom of God and how God works, part of that message is, is he's saying God takes these very tiny things, the mustard seed, you know, powder of, of yeast, and grows it. And sometimes I think it's easy for us to think, oh, well, I'm not involved in anything big for God. I'm not doing anything big for the kingdom. But the lesson and the way God works is that every little thing that we do in his name and by his power, he uses to grow into the kingdom of God. That's, that's how God works and operates uh, in this world. And nature reminds us of that. I think a third lesson that comes through, particularly with trees, is God's love of community. Isaiah 55 reads, You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Now, I remember learning the song when I was in Sunday school, and the idea of trees clapping their hands always struck me. Trees don't have hands. What, what is this actually saying? And you can imagine, you know, a teacher will clap their hands to get the attention of the class. So clapping your hands is to, to get attention. But you also clap your hands when you're celebrating something. So I can't help thinking trees here have some, are trying to draw our attention to something and celebrate something. So last year I read this book called The Hidden Life of Trees. Um, and it's by a German forest ranger who's been working his entire life around trees, and he pulls together in this book all of the scientific information about how trees communicate. And if you will indulge me for the next few minutes, I see so many parallels between what this tells us in biology and what we see in scripture about theology. So one of the first things we see about trees is that they live as a community and they share nutrients with one another. So one of the things that uh, Peter Wollleben talks about in the book is how when you study trees, you find that the roots um, actually uh, reach out to each other and share nutrients. They will actually transfer food from one tree to another. So if one tree is sick or under attack, the healthy tree will actually feed it and continue to uh, provide for it. And if the trees are too far, so that happens with trees that are the same species, but also trees that are different species. Uh, and they're finding that now when you do these forest plantations, all one type of tree, they don't grow as well. You need the mix of trees for the, the forest to be healthy. And if the trees are too far from each other, the fungus in the ground actually forms networks. 
So there's these long, thin filaments that the fungus forms, and they will reach out between one tree and another tree and connect them. And not only do they share nutrients, so the fungus will make nitrogen and phosphorus for the tree, the tree will give the fungus uh, complex carbohydrates, but the fungus, uh, through this network, it's, it, they've given it the name the, the wood wide web, um, will also send electrical signals. And those signals travel at about a centimeter per minute, which is about the same as worms and jellyfish. So you could, they're almost as alive as those animals are. But basically the trees will look out for each other and feed each other through this network because they know that they can um, thrive and do better as a whole system than as a single tree. Uh, a whole forest can create an ecosystem in the sense of they can moderate the effect of heat and cold, they can store water, they can generate humidity, humidity and they do that better as a group, as a community, than as individual trees working by themselves. And to me, there's a parallel there with how the early church uh, was working. When we read in Acts 2, all the believers had everything in common and gave to anyone as he had need. You can't help seeing the parallel between how God creates community in these trees. So God is a community. He creates a bride that is a community, but he also, you see that love of community in, in, the, in what he creates in nature. Second thing about trees is that they warn each other. They send signals to each other. So apparently many different types of trees do this, but I'll just take the example of the acacia trees, which is the favorite food of giraffes. So as giraffes start to eat the acacia trees, the trees sense that and give off a signal, a warning signal, which is ethylene gas. That not only activates its own other leaves to pump out the toxin that makes the leaves uh, unpalatable to the giraffes, but that gas then goes and warns other trees around it to also pump that same toxin so that the, the leaves are no longer edible to the giraffes. Now the giraffes have cottoned on to this and they know they can't nibble one tree and go to the next one. They've ended up having to go up, upwind where the trees haven't received the signal or to go to another cluster of trees uh, far away. But basically, they look out for each other and warn each other. So even as one tree is getting attacked, it takes the time to warn all the other trees around it to prepare. And again, I can't help seeing the parallel in what uh, Paul says to the church in Philippi. If being in a community of the Spirit means anything to you, then do me a favor, put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. Trees also look out for the common good. So if you look at this picture of the canopy of the trees, you can imagine that the trees that reach the, the high part of the canopy get most of the sunlight uh, and should do uh, the, the best. And the trees that are further down or on the forest ground uh, should do worse. And in fact, 97% of the sunlight is captured by the canopy and only 3% of the sunlight gets down to the forest floor. And yet when the scientists measure the rate of photosynthesis in a forest from all these different trees, they're all photosynthesizing at the same rate. And so what it looks like is that the, it's almost consciously the trees are equalizing the differences between strong and weak. Because again, they know that by sharing and making sure that everybody gets enough, that the whole community thrives, the whole forest uh, thrives. And that kind of uh, strong looking out for weak, again, we see the parallel in what Paul writes to the church in Rome. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and to build them up. You can't help thinking this community that we see modeled in the trees as a, it reflects God's heart and his desire for the community that is his church and his bride. 
trees also bring life to their community. So apparently, if it weren't for trees, rain clouds could only uh, drift as, as at the most uh, 600 kilometers inland. And then the, the rest of our inland um, would be completely dry and would get no rain. And so what the trees do, apparently, is as the rain clouds drift over, they drop the rain, the trees use the, the water, transpire, fancy word for sweat, send the water back up, and it can travel further down and further inland. And not only do they sweat out the water, they sweat out these chemicals called terpenes. And the terpenes act as a nuclei to create droplets. So I didn't know this, but apparently for water droplets to form, you need some kind of nucleus on which the condensate can, can collect. Uh, and so the terpenes act to be that nucleus and, and seed rain clouds, so to speak. And so those clouds can move further inland. And so I can't help thinking that in the same way that trees seem to transmit water inland and water their communities and bring life to their communities, we're meant to carry the water of life to our communities as well. You know, John says in chapter 7, whoever believes in me, streams of living water will flow from him. So life-giving water physically in trees and spiritual uh, water in, in the church community. And quite apart from all that, just being in the community, in the presence of the community of trees, um, brings health benefits, measurable health benefits. So the Japanese have this uh, tradition, what they call forest bathing. Uh, if you just go for a walk in the forest for 15, 20 minutes, there are demonstrable and measurable physiological benefits. Um, you find reduced blood pressure, increased lung capacity, increased elasticity of arteries. So as you get older, your arteries become stiffer. So lessening the stiffening of the arteries is almost like an anti-aging effect. Uh, you reduce your cortisol levels. So cortisol is your stress hormone. So you're reducing stress and you're also elevating uh, mood. So there's multiple studies that, that can demonstrate these effects. And in the photo, you'll see some members of the granary who are engaging in Australian uh, forest bathing, which is also called bushwalking. Um, and I'll talk about the sustained group in a little while. I think the fourth lesson that comes through is that nature inspires awe. Or you say it awe in Australia, but I say it the Canadian way. And awe is a word that is overused in our day, I think. We say that a, a shirt is awesome or some hot chips are awesome when they are nothing of the sort. Um, <laughs> Well, maybe some hot chips are awesome. <laughs> Depends where you get them from. So what exactly is awe? And, and it's interesting because there is this classic paper in the psychology literature that tries to, to pinpoint what is it that we experience when we experience awe. And Jonathan Haidt, who is quite a famous uh, psychologist, surveys not only the scientific literature, but also art and history. And he, he boils it down to these two things. These are the two components that make up a feeling of awe. The first is a, a vastness. There is something different about the physical or the social scale of the thing that we are experiencing or the power of it. it, it we experience something on a different scale to us. And the second component is accommodation, that somehow we have to adjust our mental structures to assimilate that new experience. So we have to readjust our thinking after experiencing awe. Now, I always love it when science discovers something that scripture already knew. And I think we get a sense of that feeling of all, that experience of all, in the book of Job, which 
If you know me, you probably realize that it's my favorite book in the Old Testament. And just to remind you, the book of Job is about this fellow called Job, a righteous man who wants to do what's right by God, and in a very short space of time loses his home, loses his children, loses his livestock, loses his status, is cast out. And the whole book is trying to make sense of suffering. He is crying out to God to understand what is happening. He has three friends that engage with him and have nothing useful to say, and God condemns them in the end. And finally, in the last four chapters, we hear from God directly. And what we see is that God takes him on this tour of creation. He shows him the land and the sea and the animals and the plants and the sky, the stars, the sun, the moon. And at first you're thinking, that's not an answer. God, God doesn't give Job a philosophical answer, doesn't give him a theological answer. What does this mean? And I think, and I've said it before, is now that we know the Romans 120 passage, that nature reveals God, what God is doing is taking Job on a personal tour of his studio. Imagine that you, you came across an artist's studio and suddenly Rembrandt or Picasso or Monet comes out and takes you on a tour and, ex and shows you all the, the things they've been working on. That is a deeply intimate moment. It is sharing who, God is sharing who he is in the creation uh, that he takes Job on. That is a level of intimacy that is not given to any other character in the Old Testament. It is something quite special. And Job responds with a sense of awe. We see that God has taken him on this tour, which is on a vastness and a scale that is far beyond what Job understands. And at the end of it, Job has to say, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. He's come to a new understanding. He's had, to had, he's had his shifting and his framework changed, his mental framework changed. He has experienced all. And that's because there has been intimacy with God. God has revealed himself the same way an artist would. So I think whenever we sense all, it is a deeply intimate moment with God. God has revealed himself in some way. And nature helps us to experience that sense of all. Does that make sense? The other thing is that a sense of awe, quite apart from just the, the Japanese forest bathing that we talked about, has its own measurable physiological benefits and health benefits. So the way they do these studies is that they show people pictures of awesome things and then give them scenarios to, and see the choices that they make. And even when you just do it with pictures, you can see that there's reduced stress and inflammation, increased well-being and life satisfaction, reduced materialism, increased generosity, increased humility. So if you can get these kinds of measurable benefits just by showing people pictures of awesome things, how much more would the experience be when it's a real life uh, experience? And the last lesson is uh, I don't want to gloss over the disasters that happen as part of nature. So nature is not all benign and beautiful and peaceful. There are earthquakes, there are volcanoes, there are tsunamis. Uh, in Australia, there are bushfires. But that also is a lesson in nature that there will be difficult times, but that is part of life. I want to focus, because we're in Australia, on pyrophytic plants. These are banksias and eucalypts, and pyrophytic means that these plants depend on fire as part of their life cycle. They need the fire and the difficulty to thrive. So there's, and, and that's throughout their life cycle. So starting with seeds, you all know the banksia cones, they have a resin on them, and apparently the, the resin has to be melted by the bushfires for the seeds to be able to come out and lead uh, to new growth. So the eucalypt trees 
have sprouts that are dormant, uh, on, hidden on the inside of the trunks. And you need the fire to activate them, and the, the trunk protects the sprout against the fire, but after the fire has passed, the sprouts are able to break through and lead to new growth again. There's even seeds that lie dormant for tens of years until they are exposed to the chemicals in a bushfire, and then they become activated and are able to sprout. And there's fire lilies that grow only after um, a bushfire. The picture here are grass trees. And grass trees have, have this very thick trunk uh, and lots of dead leaves on the outside. And, and apparently it can generate temperatures up to 1,000 degrees Celsius. But the bark is done in such a way that it protects the inside uh, of it. And within a few days after a, a bushfire has come through, you'll see the flowers come out. Now, these grass trees grow at about one to two centimeters a year, normally. And after a bushfire, they'll grow 10 centimeters a day. And, and then once they flower, they release seeds. One flower can release as much as 8,000 seeds. And those seeds not only seed new grass trees, they feed animals who are starving. So it, it sustains the fauna. And the flowers also attract the pollinators. So bees, birds, bats come by, pick up the pollen, and start new growth. So you can't help thinking there is fruit and flower that happens only after the fire has come through. And that's what Paul encourages us in Romans. He says, suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And that hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. There will be difficult times in life. Nature reflects that. But there is a kind of fruit and a kind of growth that only happens after the fire comes through. I think most of us have heard the expression, the dark night of the soul, that was a medieval poem. And the central thesis of that is that there are places that we can get to only through the dark night. Only by going through suffering with God do we reach places that we couldn't otherwise have reached. And we reach a level of maturity and growth that can only happen uh, that way. So nature reminds us of that lesson as well. So we've only looked at five lessons. And as I've said, the book of nature is one that we could read our entire lives uh, and still uh, get learnings from. But I, we've just to recap five that we've started off today with. Nature as a place of silence to help us hear God better. Nature as a reminder of God's love and care. That combination of utility and beauty being God's hallmark how God loves working through small things, trees in particular being the example of God's love of community and caring for each other, um, nature being able to inspire all and all being a, a moment of intimacy with God, and the reminder that difficult times will happen, but that there is a growth that happens if we go through those difficult times uh, with God. So in terms of what's the lesson today, I guess if you're the kind of person who enjoys nature already, uh, just to encourage you to keep going uh, and to keep listening. And, and maybe the next time you're out bushwalking, just be tuned into the Holy Spirit and what God is wanting to say to you. I guess if you're not the kind of person that enjoys nature or gets much out of it, just to encourage you to perhaps cultivate that. Uh, you know, the next time you're at the park or passing by a florist, just be open to what the Holy Spirit wants to say to you through God's creation. I guess two practical suggestions. One is to uh, give a little plug to the Sustain group here. So this is a, a group at the Granary that uh, loves nature and loves seeing God's handiwork. And in fact, all of the 
slides that you've seen, the pictures that you've seen on the slides were taken by uh, Bob McDonald, who's part of the sustained group at this church. And Bob and his wife Evelyn have put together this book called The Nature Lover Guide to Seeing God. And it is full of more of Bob's pictures, uh, and it's beautifully laid out. They're full-size pictures on one side and a devotional uh, on the other side that picks up this theme of recognizing God and nature. They're currently working on the finishing touches to print that book, but it should be available hopefully in the next month or two, and, and all the proceeds will go back into um, ministry. So um, just to encourage you to, um, to go out and perhaps see, see God and nature in a new way. Thank you.